I don't think I'm on yet. Oh, there I am. Woo! Welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is Sunday, February the 27th. I'm so glad to see you all here today. Our scripture today comes from Luke chapter 16, 1 through, what did I pick? 15. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your management because you can no longer be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig and I'm not ashamed enough to beg. I know what I'll do. When I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. So he called each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. He asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are with the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the money, other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at, him, at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your heart, and what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Amen. If you'll join our next hymn, number 151, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord. So, I don't know about you all, but I don't like to carry a lot on my person at any given time. So, I have my keys on a carabiner so that if I have to put them, if I'm not like wearing a jacket or something, I can attach them to the outside of my pants and not have them in a pocket. Don't like the feeling keys in my pocket. Also, I don't like carrying a wallet, hence the reason I always pick cell phone cases with card space in the back. Don't want to carry much. Now, my friend Tyson is the exact opposite. We, we were friends growing up. We became counselors together, and we often worked together, and we, we actually made a good pair because I was always doing as little planning as I could possibly do, and he was doing as much planning as one could possibly do. And between the two of us, we were perfect. I mean, first off, he always wore cargo pants, not 
cargo shorts, cargo pants. If you're not familiar, they're canvas pants, really popular in the late 90s and the early 2000s, where they have these big pockets right here, usually attached on the outside of the pants. He filled those things up to the point where you couldn't put a pinky in there if you want it. They were stuffed. And on top of that, he always wore a belt with so many tools attached to it, it would have made Batman jealous. It actually became a running joke that every year during youth camp or youth retreats, and sometimes during the junior high ones, that during the skit night, we'd put a big table out in front, and then he and our friend Forshee would go up, and Tyson would slowly unclip everything off his belt and empty each of his pockets, and Tyson would show them to every, I mean, Forshee would show them to everyone. And it was one of those things where I was kind of, ah, oh, that's funny. And then it kept going, and I was like, wow, what's going on? And then it reached the point where it was just absurd how much stuff this man was carrying on his body and became hilarious. But he was smart about it. Tyson was always a prepper when it came to how he did things. Like, he had his emergency sewing kit. It was needles, pins, safety pins, threads, various colors, strings, patches of various materials, including self-adhesive package, all tightly rolled up and put inside an M&M mini canister. You've seen those before, they look like really tall versions of film canisters. I figure if that will cover the broad swath. People here know what film canisters are, right? I know Dwayne does. <laughs> you put that all in there, and then on the outside, he carefully wrapped duct tape around it so that he made a roll of duct tape that he could also get access to at any moment. I mean, he was smart with his stuff. There's, there's a healthy medium between the two of us between me who likes to carry nothing and him who carries everything, including a kitchen sink. I'm sure it was in there somewhere. If only a little Lego one to pull out for effect. Okay, my dad is pretty good at that medium. You know, we, we lived out in the woods and during the winter we always had to worry about getting stuck on the road. So we always carried a little shovel in the back of the car along with a bag of kitty litter. So that if we got stuck, we could get unstuck, hopefully. You know, if Tyson had been led to it, you know, we probably also have 30 days worth of food plus blankets and maybe enough gas cans that if things really went down, we could make it to Mexico without stopping. Okay, that's, that's going too far. Whenever we travel, whether it's out of our door and just going down the street or packing for a vacation, I have to say that is both a thing of beauty and very stressful as someone who likes to see out his back window. That would stress me out all the trip. Anyway, between the two extremes, there's a happy medium carrying just enough and exactly what you need. Now, I've gotten better over the years having a four-year-old or one, two, three, any year old kind of forces you to be slightly more prepared than just having keys and a phone. And that's what this section of the Gospel of Luke is all about. 
carrying just enough and just the right things. Now, Luke is always on the move. Luke's gospel is a gospel of movement. Take it from the very beginning. You, you have before Jesus is even born, you have Mary first traveling to see Elizabeth, then traveling back to Nazareth, then traveling from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem, and then to Jerusalem, and then to Nazareth, and then, then they, they bring the 12-year-old Jesus back to Jerusalem, and then back to, I mean, he travels. And then this section that only appears in Luke, that runs 10 whole chapters from uh, 951 until near the end of 19, in which Jesus is traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. And then after Jesus in Jerusalem, the trips don't stop. Jesus, uh, Luke goes straight into the Acts of the Apostles, which, if you read through it, it's a travel narrative. First you have the, the apostles, the disciples traveling around through Samaria and along the Mediterranean, and then you have Paul going all over what is today Turkey and Syria and Greece, and then eventually Rome. It's not surprising. It's, Paul, it's Luke's vision of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We're not just simply a follower in terms of... I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. He is showing us through the actions of the people that we are reading about. That kind of movement, that kind of traveling, that constant searching and reaching and preaching through their lives, we are to imitate in our lives. Not necessarily the constant movement. You don't need to be traveling all over Asia Minor. I wouldn't recommend it right now because, you know, the world. Now, before I go too far into this, I will stop and have a moment of apologetics. That is, defense of the faith. Because, yes, if you wanted to take right now Luke's version of the gospel, and you compare it to Mark and Matthew and John, things don't line up. And that's okay. Because they each say Jesus is at different places at different times. First off, no one's writing this until 30 years later, and I don't know about you, but my wife and I argue about what happened last week. I remember things in different orders. You have four guys, and not all of them even knew who Jesus was personally, all recording various stories. They're going to get details mixed up. That's okay. The point isn't where Jesus was. The point is what Jesus was doing and saying. Secondly, if you wanted to go to the Holy Land and live, Luke, live the life that Jesus lived in Luke, my guess is you could make all the journeys and do all the things he did, at least reenact what you can, in about six months. And if Jesus is doing three years, that leaves two and a half years unrecorded. So they all have lots of material they got to choose from. And so they chose something that made sense to who they were preaching to, and according to the theology they wanted to share. So Luke is preaching to people who have no idea who this Messiah is. You know, Matthew's talking to Jews, Mark's talking to Christians, John's talking John's different. We'll go into John someday. But Luke is talking to Greeks and new Christians that come from the Greek world. 
who have no idea about Judaism, who have no idea who this Messiah was. And so he presents it in this traveling narrative, breaking it into neat sections so that they get to know who Christ is. So there are three big sections with an intro and an outro. There is the nativity story, Jesus as a child, Jesus' birth. There is Jesus in Galilee, the first big section. Jesus on the road, the second big section. Jesus in Jerusalem, the third big section. And then the resurrection and ascension. And more just the ascension and that little bit at the end. So we have just finished the first section, Jesus in Galilee. It ends at verse, nine, uh, verse 51 in the ninth chapter. Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem. That is the ending of the first section. Because at this point, Jesus will now be on the road until he reaches Jerusalem. Of course, Jesus has been on the road, but he's now leaving Galilee. Before that, if you take a look, you'll notice that Jesus does a lot of miracles. He heals a lot of sick. He casts out a lot of demons, including uh, legion. He manages to heal a centurion's servant despite never meeting the guy. The centurion comes and asks for it, and he does it like that. He feeds the 5,000. He raises the widow's son from the dead and the synagogue's, uh, daughter, synagogue's leader's daughter from the dead. He also calms the storm on the sea. So we see a lot of these amazing, powerful miracles that only appear there. Once Jesus goes on the road, almost no miracles happen. They still do. It's usually healings. It's almost exclusively healings. But for the most part, nothing else major happens. That makes sense. Luke needed to tell us who this guy was, who this person is. And just as we reach the end, he asked them, who am I? And they say, the Messiah. You got the point. Jesus no longer needs, I mean, Luke no longer needs to convince us that this is the Messiah. So he's not going to worry about it. Jesus probably still kept doing miracles. But it doesn't matter to what Luke wants to teach us. Because Luke is moving on to the next thing. You know who he is. Now you're going to learn to live like him. So we see a shift towards teaching. Now in that first section, Jesus does teach. He has his great proclamation, the, the, Lord, I, 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 the kingdom of heaven is near, and, you know, I declare the year of the jubilee. He also teaches, uh, everyone is accepted at my table, when he invites people that were outcasts to come sit and eat with him, or he is invited to go join them. And he also teaches the Sermon on the Plains, where he sets out what it means to live a good, moral, and ethical life as a follower of him. So he sets that all out. It's small, especially compared to the miracles. It's not a lot. But now as we're shifting into this time where he's traveling with them, he's going to expand upon that. And we've all been students at one time or another, I'm guessing. And there is a difference between theoretical and practical. You can learn how to do something, but it's not until you start doing it regularly that you actually learn it. I'm, I'm looking at, I know we have a bunch of teachers in here, a lot of you are in elementary. With math, you don't just tell them how to add two numbers, you have them sit down and actually practice adding two numbers, right? 
Because that's the only way you actually learn. You have to take the theoretical and put it into the practical. And so Jesus has given them the theoretical, this is how you live your life, Sermon on the Plains. And now we're going to explore the practical. First thing he does after 951, well, okay, actually first thing that happens is he gets turned away from the Samaritan's village. We explored that last week. Next thing he does is he breaks them into 36 pairs. It's called the sending of the 70 or the sending of the 72. Doesn't really matter which number it is. The point is he sends them out. Go explore all the villages. Deliver the news, the good news. The kingdom of heaven is near. The year of Jubilee has been announced. And they go out and they do what Jesus told them. And then they come back and they say, Jesus, we did it. It was great. Jesus goes, good, good. Settle down. Just a heads up. It won't always be this easy. Which, as we all know, what happens after Jesus' persecution, yeah, that, that was true. And then Jesus blesses them. He praises God. And he gets a question. Told, we're told a, a, a scholar of the law, an expert in the law. So this is either another rabbi like Jesus himself or perhaps some rabbi's student who is really good. Comes up and says, teacher, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, well, you're an expert in the law. You tell me. Okay. Well, you love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You got it. Okay, okay, but, but who's my neighbor then? Jesus starts to tell a story. Now, it's interesting that Samaritans pop up a lot here. Samaritans are the other. There's lots of others in our world there are us there's me there's my family there's my community my neighbors my school district my state my county my nation my cultural group my and then there are the others the ones who aren't like me who don't look like me who don't act like me who don't think like me who they're not the same as me I mean, there's different versions of the other I mean, look at Jesus' world. There are the Greeks. Okay, the Jews and the Greeks get along okay. A lot of their history, the Greeks were in charge. So it's a little bit of a not great relationship, but okay. Then there's the Jews and the Romans. And the Romans might be others, but maybe you aren't mean to them. Because as we know, Romans do things like hang you on trees so maybe don't be mean to the Romans. But the Samaritans are different. The Samaritans are the splitters. They are the ones who were once one of us, and they have become degraded. They are less than human. They are dangerous. They are apostates. I don't remember how to say that word all of a sudden. People who have let go of the good faith. They are the dangerous others. And so Jesus uses one of these dangerous others 
to kind of expand upon this idea of loving your neighbor, upon that idea he put forward back in the Sermon on the Plains of loving your enemies, blessing those who curse you, doing good for those who harm you. He tells him, I want to tell you about a good man, a Jew, walking a normal route that every person here knows all about, one that's a little bit dangerous. And he gets beaten up, and he's left there by the side of the road. And along comes a priest, one of the descendants of Aaron, who, you know, their job is to serve as the intermediary between God and man. He walks down the road and he sees that man all beat up. But he doesn't do what you would expect. He doesn't help the guy. He just leaves him lying there. Okay. You might think as a a good God-fearing Jew, well, he might be leaving him lying there because maybe he thinks he's dead. And in order to be a priest, you cannot touch a dead body. I'll give him a a slight pass. Maybe. And then Jesus goes, okay. Let me tell you about the Levite then. These are the descendants of the other, the people who have helped the priest since the beginning. And they could touch dead bodies. They were meant to be the other intermediaries. They assisted the priest in all of their duties. They took care of the temple. They took care of the money. They took care of making sure the Levites were fed. The Levite travels down, and he too sees this man lying at the side of the road, and he too passes by on the other side. But then along comes the other. You know, that person that we don't like, that person we despise, because they are not good people. And he stops, and he helps. He helps at his own expense. He helps beyond what is expected of him. It's not strange that it's a Samaritan. After all, Jesus is talking to a group of men, and women probably, who had just watched him strike out against a whole uh, town of Samaritans. You know, they rejected Jesus, said, yeah, no, you're Jewish, go away. They have just been traveling to all these towns in the area. And my guess is they encountered more than one Samaritan. This is, after all, on the edge of Galilee and Samaria, which has lots of Samaritans in it. They came back all happy and excited. But you can't help but wonder, especially looking at the fact that this story comes right after that, that perhaps some of these disciples who went and delivered the good news, ignored the Samaritans in those towns, but they only went and talked to the other Jews. Maybe the Greeks too, but definitely mostly the Jews. Jesus is challenging them to reconsider what they're doing when they other people. I mean, we do it today too. There's actually, there's kind of a joke othering but I don't really think it's an othering. You know, the kind of thing where, you know, it's like Ohioans and Michiganders. You know, it's a bit of a joke, 
you know, they're the other folks. But let's face it, the Michiganders think it's funny and the Michiganders do it right back, right? Kind of like how I make fun of people from New Jersey because I'm from Pennsylvania and I'm married into a now New Jersey family. <sighs> America's armpit. It's a joke. My mother-in-law's watching. It's a joke. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. But, you know, that it's not really othering when everyone's in on the same gag. No, othering is far more dangerous. I mean, we can think of the obvious ones. Easy one to pull out. Nazis. They other the Jews, they other the Romani, they other lots of people. And because they do that, because they are forcing that, it ends up becoming deadly. But that's not the only othering. There's the far more devious version that we see in today's society, in the American society, where we other those who live around us. And... You know, sometimes it's fairly blatant. And sometimes you have people out there who, they're champions of this ideas. And they, they say, oh, no, we're empathetic to this other group. But at the same time, doing their best to dehumanize that other group. Jesus wants us to get rid of those bags. We're not like Tyson. We don't have a pocket full of stuff that is useful in every situation. Or rather, we have something in the pocket that will be useful for every situation we come across. Instead, we are carrying around with us lots of junk. Things that have no use. That might make us feel good. That might make us feel safe. Because that's what othering does. That's what holding on to hate and anger does. That's what prejudice does. It makes us feel good about who we are because we are not the other. It makes us feel good because we are better than them. It makes us feel safe because it means when I encounter a person of that other group, I automatically know how to respond, whether it's crossing to the other side of the street or not meeting their gaze, but being rude, or cruel, or mean. Jesus is telling us we don't need to carry that baggage with us when we carry the gospel, that we can let it drop and fall by the wayside. But before I go too far, because I'll tell you, the message that comes through most clearly in these 10 chapters is that Jesus is telling us that the way to travel in the Spirit with Jesus is to have love and trust in God. But then we have this weird, weird parable. Let's face it, this is a weird parable. Has this ever been preached to you before? Have you ever heard someone read? Matthew, I mean Luke 16, 1 through 15. I, I saw one nod over here, but not many. I know we've talked about it in Bible study. It's just strange. Jesus, after spending all this time saying, live morally, act ethically, act in love, act with correctness, 
I want to tell you about a guy who cheated his boss and got thanked for it. What? Okay, little context, little context first. People, especially wealthier people in the ancient middle ancient world, often didn't live at their properties. I mean, we find that today too, right? You know, you might have a boss of a company, and I, you know, I remember working for Friendly's. I met the CEO once or twice, different CEOs. It's like we went through a CEO a year, it felt like. You know, I met them once or twice at big meetings, but for the most part, he never stopped by. You know, instead, it was up to the district manager and to our general manager to be in charge, to make all the decisions, and their decisions were legally binding just as their bosses were. And that's what that, that ancient world worked too. You know, this guy is running a business, running a farm or something, somewhere away from the boss. And the boss figures out this guy is squandering his money. It doesn't tell us that he's actually cheating the boss. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word squander, I think he's inept. He's kind of useless. That's how I read it. But this guy is squandering his money. The boss brings him to accounts and says, I'm going to fire you. Not yet, but soon. And the man thinks to himself, what am I going to do? I'm too weak to work. I can't do physical labor. I, uh, I'm too proud to beg. I know what I'll do. I will give breaks to the people who owe my boss. And they will be indebted to me. So that when I have been let go, I can find work in their houses. So he calls the first debtor, says, slash it down. Calls the next debtor and says, slash it down. And as far as the legality went, this was legal. He could do that. He was still the manager, the steward. And then the boss comes. I don't know about you, but imagine, you know, you went to... I don't know if you have ever had employees or a money manager or anything like that, and you went and found out that they just gave away like 40% of what you were owed without telling you. How would you feel? I'm not seeing anyone looking happy about it, right? Anyone's okay with this? No? No? Yeah! Who would be? No, instead, though, this boss comes and recognizes what this man has done as a shrewd, intelligent move and actually praises him for it. And that's where the story ends. This is really weird, right? Why is Jesus giving us a story about an unethical man doing an unethical thing and lifting it up as a good thing? Now, if you, if you open up six different commentaries, unless they are all quoting the same couple people, I will tell you that you are going to find six different opinions as to why this section exists. What does it mean? Why does Jesus include it? And I, won't, I don't have the answer for you. And I think that's one of the beauty of the Gospels and especially of Luke's parables. They are meant to teach a lesson, but being in a form of a story means that there's multiple ways to understand anything. 
And so thinking about traveling, thinking about packing, Jesus reminding us that in this world, things are more complex, more strange, more weird. This man is told that he is shrewd and acting in a shrewd way. And then Jesus says, you should be shrewd like him. And that was one of the beauties of Tyson's pockets. Yes, they were packed to the absolute brim. But you know what? Everything was packed just right. Everything had its use. Everything was ready for when it needed to be used. God gives us so many gifts. He asks us to get rid of a lot of things. A lot of things that keep us from that love and that trust. But at the same time, realizing that this world is complex, that we need to act and live shrewdly within it. To carry just enough and to use that just enough just right. You know, it's impressive looking at this pack job up there. Because look, everything is perfectly in its place. And way to pick that one out today, Don. I just told her luggage or a packed car would work. But every single thing is perfectly in its place. Nothing is useless. It's a shrewd use of space. We are all given our gifts, our talents. As we live our lives, we pick up lots of other things. As we are traveling on this journey with Luke, as we are not just walking towards Christ, but walking with Christ. He is teaching us how to take these lessons and apply them to our real life. He's giving us tools. He's giving us words, ideas, concepts, practical advice, theoretical advice, and allowing us to use it as we see best. So take that love, take that trust, take all those gifts, all those things you have learned. Look at your own life. Let go of the things that you don't need. And use what you have shrewdly. So that you can get from Galilee to Jerusalem alongside Jesus. And then beyond the empty grave. And on towards the kingdom. Thank you. I realize that this last week has been an uncertain one in the news. And frankly, I just had my mind on, on the prayer request of today that I didn't even think of what's going on beyond our doors. I don't know what the answers are in this world. And I know that we probably have individuals here who are at least a bit frightened, if not uncertain, for what will happen in these next few months. I don't know. And my heart breaks for all the people right now whose lives have been completely upended. They too are walking on a path alongside us, but a different one. So we can only do what we have learned best from our Savior. To love, to love unashamedly, to love extravagantly, to trust, to trust even when it seems like the walls are falling around our ears. 
and to do our best along the path with whatever little bit we have, whatever little bit of energy, resources, money, emotion. So go out into this world just doing the best you can, using what you have. And as we started with this sermon, this service, singing a song about grace. I don't pick that because of my daughter. I just We have a lot of grace in the Bible. Know that when you fail, there's grace. And just like that little girl, she'll run up and give you a big hug and say, it's okay. Amen.